Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. What are wine professionals pairing with turkey this Thanksgiving? Here's what a few New York wine people are opening up this month. Chris McPherson is not messing around, and he's going straight for the Grand Cru Burgundy. Chris, what are you pouring on Thanksgiving? Uh, pouring for myself some Linea Vigile, Clos Saint-Denis, Grand Cru, 2006 vintage. Uh, something a bit special for a special day. You're not messing around there. You're really living it up. Well, you know, it's uh, it's just me, me and my partner, so uh, she'll enjoy this, and... Uh, Obviously, I'll take it a little bit more than, than she gets. <laughs> and you just did a trip to Burgundy, didn't you? I did. I was lucky enough to have a trip. It was fantastic. We did a lot of barrel sampling. Uh, so the Sensodyne toothpaste was very valuable on that trip <laughs> and was being passed around uh, under the table by everyone. But it was fantastic. It was amazing to be there um, and to meet the people behind you know, these fantastic, amazing wines that you see in the market. Now, Victoria James, she has something special in mind for her vegetarian feast. V, what are you pouring with your turkey? Well, for my guests, Cru Beaujolais, Lunevant, Diacon, uh, but I'm a vegetarian, so with uh, my Brussels sprouts and sweet potatoes, I'll have white burgundy all the way, definitely. Which producer? Uh, Gignard, Le Caire, hands down. Molly Rydzel, she's getting her Lebanese wine fix this Thanksgiving. This year for Thanksgiving, Erin, uh, we're going to be drinking the 2003 Chateau Moussard Rouge. It's an amazing vintage. It's drinking perfectly right now. It's nice and rich with that Cabernet synonymous grape that they have, um, but it also has some Senso in it, which gives it a really kind of light aromatic quality. It's delicious and it's perfect with turkey, stuffing, cranberry, and pumpkin pie. I think that's something that Serge would approve of. I agree. Now Michael Nelson, he's going straight for the good stuff in Piedmonte. Amen. What are you drinking with turkey this year? I'm going Piedmont. Yeah? Pella Varga. Lost grape, but outstanding Aruque. Tastes like sage. Sage and cranberries. That's going to go perfect with the turkey. Perfect. Knockdown, drag out, fights over. Aruque. Christy Frank. She still hasn't decided what she's opening up with turkey, but she's ready for dessert. Yo, gobble, gobble. <laughs> I... What am I drinking with the turkey? I know what I'm drinking after the turkey. For the after turkey celebration, we will be drinking the round. Excuse me, after turkey? 
you have your turkey, you have your wine, it's all very proper, blah, blah, blah. Then there's the pumpkin pie and the whipped cream, round house, pumpkin king, pumpkin liqueur. It's evil and so good. Aaron Von Rock. He's looking more for a transformative wine experience. Aaron, what are you pouring with turkey this Thanksgiving? I think I you Gewurztraminer. You know, it makes sense. It's spice, adventure. And at the end of the night, people are calling it Gewurztraminer, which is a fun transformation in and of itself. Gewurztraminer to Gewurztraminer, a fun transformation. Matt Conway is going large format and for something he doesn't normally drink. What are you pouring with your turkey this year? A really, really big bottle of Beaujolais. How big is the bottle? Hopefully three, five liters of La Paix Beaujolais. And I hate Beaujolais, but I'll do it with turkey. <laughs> Shit, I can't believe you just said that. You just said I hate Beaujolais. What about the cruise? You don't like those cruise? Nope, sorry. What about Fleury? Done. <laughs> JT Robertson, he's keeping it simple. What am I pouring with my turkey this evening? Uh, Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. Um, in the Lear format, which is beautiful, right? It's five point, like five percent alcohol. You really taste it in that liter. No, no, like, it, it, like it's better. It ages better. It is much better. Oh yeah, absolutely. So then you pair that with the uh, the bacon cheeseburger from uh, Wendy's. You know Wendy's? Let me ask you this: What are you really drinking with your turkey? What am I really drinking with my turkey? What do you open it up? Savuto Odiari Savuto. It's a Galliopio blend from, I'm serious, from Liguria. It's fine. From Liguria? Yeah. But what, pray tell, is legendary David Newland pulling from his weathered doctor's bag this Thanksgiving? An answer to all our burning questions. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you this. What are you drinking with your turkey? Don't lie now. I really want to know the exact bottle you're going to open up on Thanksgiving. I'm going. I'm going to be in Paris, so I'm going to drink. Are you going to be at your house in Paris? I'm going to be at my my home in Paris. Um, so I'm going to be drinking since I'm in Paris, uh, Pepe Van Winkle, with my turkey, because I'm very uh, patriotic. He's going to be drinking Gentleman Jack. Gentleman Jack, uh, in my patriotic uh, zest for my homeland. David Newland, drinking American drinks on Thanksgiving. Now, I also talked with another sommelier, but his answer was so intricate that it warrants its own segment. So stay tuned next week to find out who. And I'm going to give you a little teaser here. We may or may not be singing an impromptu drinking song in perfect harmony. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. 
reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Frank Carnelison here from Sicily. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Nice to see you. You're from Belgium. Yes. And your dad was a wine collector. Yes. My and mother was an um, was a director of the hotel school in uh, in my uh, home village, which is Hasselt. And um, every Sunday was a um, was kind of a family gathering because uh, both parents obviously uh, they're busy with their uh, with their work, and so uh, Sunday was an, uh, a sacred moment for an, uh, for the four of us, with my sister to be uh, to be uh, together, and so. I was usually plummeting in uh, the cellar with uh, with my father to uh, to go and check the right bottle for the right dish which uh, my mother was preparing. Your dad collected wine and you used to open bottles with him. Yes, and um the collecting started at a at a at a later age because in, uh, the wine drinking, the wine tasting, I think I started um at 8 or 10 years old. And then the the real collecting together with my father and uh, from my age started as uh, as of the age of fourteen. I remember very well. I uh, I was able and um, to to buy an, uh, a case of a mixed case of DRC seventy two. My father bought one, and uh, and I bought one. And so we uh, gradually over the years we uh, we finished them both. We were not really collectors for the money, but uh, collectors for the drinking. So you get a little bit older and you moved into consulting and and brokering. Yes, and uh, that was a long, um, let's say, uh, percorso in Italiano. Um, it's a, let's say it has taken a bit of a uh, bit of time, a few years, because I honestly was afraid to uh, to make a professional life out of wine, because it takes away a part of the uh, the freedom to choose, because you uh, sometimes have to make. Uh, let's say business or economical and, um, uh, choices, and so I found a nice way to uh, to avoid this and um, and to uh, to be able to purchase old sellers and to uh, to sell them uh, abroad or to uh, to other wine passionate people. And so um, there was, let's say, only the avail- availability of an, um, uh, special wines. Um, let's call them stock market wines, labels. And uh, those have also given me the the possibility to taste, let's say, the world's, well, let's um, let's put it this way, not really the world's at that moment, but especially France's and uh, uh, Grand Cru's and great wines. So an earlier generation of Frank, you were drinking a lot of the the classics of of France. Yes, because also, and um, uh, I was born in '61, so by the time I was 14, I was drinking the um, '70s, mid '70s, up to um, mid '80s uh, Bordeaux, and I remember very well in uh, in those days, and um, uh, the top growths you could buy them uh, per bottle from the shelves, and at uh, very reasonable prices, and uh, converted they were costing. 25, 30 euro, and we're talking about Petrus, Ikem, uh, Lafitte, and uh, Mouton, uh, Margot, all the all the top chateaus. And at what point did you decide maybe I'd like to make my own wine? 
Uh, also, that and, um, is an, uh, is quite an um, uh, quite a complex story. There's not one specific reason why someone would uh, would go to uh, go and make wine, and uh, but it is a combination, I think, for an, uh, the love of nature. And uh, I was and, uh, doing a lot of and, um, uh, a lot of alpine climbing. Um, which means adventure, the sports and um, activity, uh, the challenges, and and so everything combined, and um, with my let's say gastronomic background and the, um, the the love for wine, has driven me a bit more to the productive side than uh, than for example just the buying and the selling and the analytical tasting uh, side, and so gradually I grew into. Um, um, or I was uh, getting much um, uh, much more attracted to the the producing the, the producing, and so when I was visiting the the wineries, I was always asking the why question, why this, why that, and uh, so I got much more attracted every uh, every year, and I was and uh, I was more and more in, let's say involved, and and my passion grew for wine. You decide to go to Etna, and why was that? Uh, there. Was no, there was no, um, there was no f- sudden flash for going to Etna. There, there was no an, uh, immediate an, uh, search for Etna. It has been a gradual process of an, um, eliminating places where I did not want to go to uh, for a number of reasons, and uh, mainly it was either. I didn't want to go to, for example, uh, Burgundy because it uh, it has become a monoculture. Um, the same thing for Barolo, although I, I love Nebbiolo. Um, I, I, I couldn't find the right, uh, let's say, environmental and, um, complexity anymore. And, uh, and so I was more intrigued also with the fact of being able to plant and, uh, without uh, grafted vines, so the ungrafted vines, which means and, uh, I had to... Um, a step a step away from uh, limestone or even clay, and so I ended up with a sandy structure. And then uh, um, looking and uh, digging into uh, the the geological part of uh, of the wines, uh, I ended up uh, checking out the volcanoes, which means um, Vesuvius and uh, Etna. And so they were on, uh, let's say, the the list of uh, places to uh, to check out. And um, in 2000, I uh, went to uh, to Georgia. The Caucasus, which and, um, uh, which have uh, which has been a, an, a beautiful and um, a trip also and uh, very adventurous because it's it was going back to the the roots of winemaking and um, uh, after this trip and uh, I um, uh, I came to Etna um, uh, I visited a friend in uh, Vitoria. Uh, Giusto Kipinti, and with uh, with him, I and uh, we had a bottle, and uh, which was a surprise, and um, served by a sommelier in um, in Modica, and he uh, it was an Etna wine afterwards, and so we couldn't really place the wine. We were and, uh, thinking about um, maybe uh, north of Italy, um, uh, Piemonte, and then when uh, when the wine was and um, um, was uh, the bottle was undiscovered, and it was and. Um, it was unbelievable to uh, to see that it was Etna, and uh, so the next day I took the car, I drove out there, but there was not enough time to find the place. It was uh, was a complicated and um, uh, let's say an, um, a trip to uh, to find all the uh, all the small locations, the villages, and uh, driving into the valley. I remember it was it struck me because I I had the impression that I 
uh, it was like a déjà vu of uh, of, of of Georgia. Um, the uh, the, uh, the the whole environment. It was still snow on the mountain. The, the stone walls, old vines, and it was like love at first sight. And then when I was talking with um, a local and a, I think a producer and a, a local person explained me that he was uh, making his own wine and um, uh, I didn't understand everything because it was a bit dialect and Sicilian and so it was a bit complicated. But then he explained me that he was harvesting very late, like in October at least for me, that seemed very late. And um, so putting bits and pieces of information together of that trip, I just decided like that's the place. And uh, so I, uh, after a few months, I came back and um, uh, to, to check the place out in a more profound way and uh i could and uh i found an, a small place to uh to start uh to start my and uh let's say my winery in uh which was half a hectare and uh, not even that with a uh, with a small and uh with a small old uh cellar we took out the barrels and uh put in uh, amphoras and um uh, that's that's how the whole story uh took off without even knowing the logistics or the and uh, all the me mechanisms of of uh, let's say a winery or the wine making and uh which was much more complicated and about what year was that? That was uh, 2001. I uh, I came back in December 2000. 2001, I and, uh, I started and, uh, pruning the vineyard uh, together with a and, um, with the person who was living um, uh, above the cellar. Uh, his father and, um, uh, was um, uh, it's called a contadino, and he uh, he taught me how to prune, uh, how to work the land, and uh, and so it's an. Um, yeah, it's it's been um, actually it's it's a bit of a fantastic story because not nothing of that was was uh, came from a from a balance sheet or an um, uh, or some kind of projection for uh, to make a winery. It was just the idea was to produce wine, not to set up a winery. That was the last thing that uh, that that was planned, and so it it was more like a hobby operation which grew out of hand and uh, and has become a winery now. So you started with half a hectare and you had some prephylaxera vines in there. Uh, we had a part of prephylaxera vines, uh, vines that were old but grafted. And um, it, it was a mix of, um, um, of everything. Let's say the, 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 the original vineyards, uh, half of the vines were, I think, over the years they died. And they, uh, then they were replaced with, uh, with grafted ones and, um, because that was, let's say, standard procedure and, um, in, um, from, from the, the new period. But there were really incredibly old vines in, in, that, uh, in that plot. And you decided to do skin contact and you also installed some clay vessels. Well, yes and no. It, uh, it was not that simple. The, uh, the, 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 let's say the, the intellectual process um, of how to make the wine uh, had been, let's say, already formed or um, uh, the idea was already clear. And um, the skin contact, yes, because and, um, by logics, all the flavors are on the skins. And so um, uh, I wanted let's say the most skin contact which I could get. So my idea was not just to have skin contact during uh, alcoholic fermentation, but also an malolactic fermentation. Um, 
the clay vessels um, for me at that time when I started seemed logic because I did not want any external taste going into the wine. My idea of wine was on a liquid rock um, uh, and so I did not want any wood or any other taste going into that wine. And so the clay vessels were the perfect uh, at that time answer to an, um, uh, to what I was looking for. And so and I, I, I found these, uh, these vessels in, uh, in Spain. They were smaller than the Georgian ones, uh, which were, I think, about 2,000 liters, the, the content. And uh, the Spanish ones were 400, which fitted better for, let's say, the, the size of, um, uh, of the vineyard I, uh, I had at that time. And did Guisto point you to those? Because he ended up using Spanish amphora. Yes, I uh, when I I, uh, I had an, uh, a truck coming with uh, with the amphora, I and, um, uh, I brought two uh, two amphoras to uh, to Justo, and uh, he did some testing with it. Um, uh, I started also with this, and Justo liked it. And then uh, afterwards, he and, uh, he uh, he bought quite a lot of uh, the amphoras for uh, for his Pitos wines and. Um, I, uh, I continued with the uh, with the ones I had, and I must say the first batch of uh, the amphoras is uh, was very good. The clay was very dense. The second one that uh, that arrived uh, the year afterwards, and uh, I was very disappointed because they uh, they lost a lot of liquid uh, because the the clay was not uh, baked possibly at the right temperature or the quality of the clay was too um, too uh, coarse grain, and uh, I had a loss of of liquid. And so that uh, I did not use them uh, for uh, three or four years afterwards. And after uh, after that period, I uh, when I uh, f- uh, when I found out that also the lined epoxy lining was uh, gave better results in terms of wine, I and, uh, I started to use also the, um, uh, the the second battery which arrived and uh, but uh, completely lined. You had started with the idea of having liquid rock, and so something from the earth yeah. would have helped you along with that but you had problems involving evaporation and losing liquid and then oxidation maybe as well exactly um the idea of liquid rock um let's say uh let's step back and uh, from the beginning and uh the first two years i think were um much more a anti wine in a way that I started the idea to uh, produce a wine which was not a, an Australian, let's say, fruit bomb, um, uh, not an, um, uh, a concentrated an, um, um, uh, wood wine. And so the ideas were more not this and not that, and, uh, which means a bit more of a provocative and, um, um, concept, uh, more based on what I did not like, much more than what I maybe um, uh, would have liked. And um, but as I did not even know uh, what the territory and uh, was going to be like, and uh, my my concept was more based on um, on on the. On, let's say the things I I prefer to avoid than uh, than I prefer to uh, to achieve, and then uh, because that was still a question mark, and so gradually in uh, 2001 uh, were very evolved wines and um, uh, oxidized and uh, but not and, uh, dead and uh, they are very alive. But the colors they completely changed from uh, red or uh, the orange, um, uh, say Tuvier, the the brick color, to uh, nearly black ash, and uh, which was actually quite funny because. 
just working on uh, on black lava soil. It's like the wine literally and visually and um, uh, was liquid rock in in a way. And so I I still like those wines. They still have have an edge. They have a tension, um, but obviously they um, uh, they miss an, a fruitiness, a an, um, a an approachability. And so I call this an um, I, I like to refer to the to this uh, these first let's say three years as intellectual wines, which gradually um, moved to uh, a search for, let's say, at first not precision, but um, a bit more fruit and uh, a wine that has an, uh, a hedonistic pleasure uh, pleasure to drink with an, um, an identity of territory, which after four years I was trying to and uh, under uh, I was trying to and I was starting to understand um, what etna etna wines were and uh, were meant to me that the tannins the but also the glycerin from the south the and uh, the elegance but also the the density of uh, of the wines and uh, the profoundness that has taken time and so I accept criticism when people say like okay your wines are oxidized but I also cannot uh, hide the fact that um, those are are my children and, and uh, I I still like them and on on cold winter days uh, those wines they still they still uh, touch me and they uh, they give me a sense of place and I'm um, uh, although I do understand that uh, that these wines also are very limited in terms of and uh, let's say uh, pleasurability. It's like the, the cello suites of Bach. You, you don't really put it in, uh, put uh, that music on uh, to go shopping in a in a mall. It's and uh, it will creep into your mind. And uh, it's so the same thing with these wines. They're not for every day and, uh, and not for everyone. And so these wines, they they had their their let's say their logics and their their sense of time. And um, uh, the without these wines, probably. I uh, would not have been able to make the wines I make today, um, which are much more precise, much more refined. And um, uh, uh, so it's, I needed that to get to where I am now. So maybe we could start by your telling me what you didn't want to make when you started. What was it that you didn't want to do in the beginning? I did not like wood in wine. Uh, you have to... Um, uh, let's say the, the 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 historical background. We're talking about end of the nineties, and uh, we're talking about uh, classic traditional Barolos uh, being transformed into, let's say, Bordeaux influenced uh, barrique and uh, new barrique wines, uh, vanilla and uh, toasty oak in Nebbiolos, and uh, which I I, I I loved and I still um, greatly greatly love this uh, this area. The same and I think with uh, the the Dominique Laurent wines in in Burgundy or in, uh, and so it, it I was uh, I, I was not satisfied and I, I didn't really like those wines because they they gave me the impression that everything became very much the same and uh, dominated by either density which was another thing I I was not really fond of and uh, a marmalade marmalade like style of wine. Um, with with a lot of an, uh, a lot of oak over it, and so it it uh, I had the impression, as a, as a, a a wine passionate person, that the nineties they it was more about uh, having hugely concentrated wines, um, going over the the sense of place, and um, uh, you, it was for me very hard in um, uh, drinking these wines, understanding 
where I was when I was tasting those wines. And so I, I preferred the wines of uh, Henri Gouge, for example, which were a bit difficult when they were young, but uh, beautiful in, them in terms of uh, where, uh, where you are and, uh, in, uh, when you taste the glass. I, I loved um, uh, the, the, the old-style Bruno Giacosas, the, uh, 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 the, the Montfortino, Montprivato, the, the, the Brunate from uh, Rinaldi. Those wines, they gave me a sense of place and, and um, uh, a great joy in, in, in tasting. And so my school is uh, much, um, very classic in, um, in background, not only uh, the, the French classic Bordeaux and um, where also Bordeaux suffered from this and a big change in um, but that started maybe already in the end end of the, the 80s but especially the 90s uh, most of the the, the the well the Pouillacs and, and the Saint Julias they, they started to become let's say Pomerols and, and, and so everything let's say my my wine world was uh, was starting to get blurred in um, uh, in um, in terms of uh, sense of space, uh, and so I uh, I started with uh, with producing wines more with I want to make the absolute uh, terroir wine, and for me that was liquid rock. And obviously I uh, I maybe made the same mistakes, and instead of using too much oak, I used too much oxygen. And so my wines, in a way, they uh, they started off and um, uh, let's say overly evolved, and now and uh, my wines are much more precise and uh, uh, the oxygen management is much better, and I see that in even Bordeaux or now also Barolo, the use of wood is getting much less, so maybe the the world is getting more uh, more sensitive and sensible in a way, and so and um, I think we and uh, we all need to pass sometimes through either an excess of technology and for me an excess of uh, of archaicness, and uh, gradually we move into an, um, making wines with more. Uh, respect and definition for territory and less an um, um, producer or ego oriented, but much more, let's say, a nature and space oriented. And what are some of the changes that you made besides lining the clay amphora mm. to control the oxygen? What did you do to bring about the precision that you, you enjoy now? Um, it's difficult to uh, pinpoint all the details but um, uh, my Japanese importer he um, uh, he usually uh, he, well he expresses this in a different way like it's uh, it's like an, uh, a mountain of small or uh, let's say all um, all small details and uh, make a mountain of an um, uh, uh, or create a mountain, and the mountain obviously and, um, uh, is a big difference than, uh, than a small hillside, uh, which makes the wines very different today than they are or than they used to be. But to say practically, um, we uh, our our lids are covered today and uh, during fermentation, which you know, um, uh, they were open uh, with mosquito netting covered, but there was much more oxygen exchange in the old days than there uh, there is now. And you know, now that the CO two during fermentation is a bit trapped in the in the vats, which gives a much better oxygen management. So there is the natural pr protection during fermentation, which doesn't oxidize the cap and the wine. Uh, that's number one. Number two and, um, is the um, the racking. Is much uh, is done in two phases, and, uh, but very uh, very short after pressing. 
We do um, uh, a first uh, racking after uh, after we pressed. Um, let's say three or four days, we leave the wine to to decant and, uh, for the reds, and then seven days to ten days for the white, and then we uh, we rack them. Which means I don't have the gross lees uh, during an uh, élevage, but only the fine lees. That gives a, a, a more clean reaction on the wines, and so the the wines are more focused, and they still have enough nourishment uh, during élevage. And then uh, during bottling, for example, we um, we use argon, and um, the, what uh, is pulled out of the tank into the bottle is gradually filled up with argon, and so it's like putting a blanket over the wine, um, which and, um, which doesn't uh, which gives you um, virtually no difference between the initial bottling and the uh, the last part of the of the bottling. So those are small things, but also, for example, when we uh, when we rack or do pump overs, and um, uh, we um, uh, we use a different technique to when, um, uh, to fill up the, uh, the tubes first, and uh, instead of using uh, too much and, um, uh, oxygen through the pumping uh, to push the wine through, uh, in some parts we use the the, the CO two in uh, in as pressure to uh, for the pump. To get to uh, to get the wine through the hoses, instead of using the pump where you push, let's say, oxygen to uh, behind the wine. In this case, we we push CO two behind the wine, and um, and so it's it's a number of small details which uh, makes a big difference. At the same time that you've made changes in how you make the wine or how you interpret the wine, mm. you've also expanded the vineyard area that you control. Yes. And how did that come about? And what is the extent of it? It's not a quest for uh, f- for reaching and um, uh, let's say half a million bottle uh, bottles. To, uh, for me, it's it's um, it's a, a matter of importance. And um, I started from zero, and so I need to build up and um, let's say a winery and um, with a certain seriousness in work, where I can do selections. When I started with the half a hectare, it's hard to do a selection. Um, uh, you have to work with what you have, otherwise you don't make wine. And so already the second year, I had two and a half hectares, which is already more comfortable because parts of the, the vineyards and um, uh, the exposure is used for uh, the, the, the top wine, then a part of it doesn't get there. And so you don't throw away the grapes. And so you declassify them in a way into a second wine or in a, or in a base wine um, which has more sense because you're not going to cultivate an, uh, let's say 10,000 kilos of, uh, of grapes uh, throwing away 5,000 kilos and make only a 5,000 I think that doesn't have any sense and it's also waste it's, it doesn't feel right it's um, uh, it's, it's, it's nearly consumption oriented in, in a way and so it's uh, no, there's also a respect for the land that produces a certain amount, and uh, so you you want to also uh, produce from the grapes uh, which are not destined for your let's say your 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 top uh, wine or your best products. Um, that is one, and so I needed more surface to make uh, very good wines, and also to reduce my uh, my yields. Uh, second, I gradually uh, noticed that um, Etna had uh, a, a lot of different wines and um, uh, wine expressions um, in the different uh, areas. And so I gradually um, started to to rent land and um, uh, purchase and, um, uh, smaller plots in, uh, in other areas which I, I liked. And the 
let's say the information came from local people who made their their home wine and, and uh, as the the winemaking technique from local people is relatively straightforward and simple it gives a good sense of place and, and uh, it gives you an idea of uh, how certain vineyards um, let's say express themselves compared to to others in different locations different altitudes and so this gradually brought me to certain sites I like more than uh, than others uh, but obviously that is a very slow process which has taken time and so in 2000 and uh, three uh, and four, I had uh, three hectares. 2005, six, and uh, we went to um, five. And then 2008 and nine, we had about uh, six and a half. And then it, it grew exponential. And um, we on um, the last three years, we went from, um, let's say, 10, 11, and now we're at 18 hectares, and um, uh, which is quite a lot and now I, I feel I need to just stop for a moment because and, uh, it's better now to uh, to get everything perfectly aligned, the, the poles, the, the, the vineyards, um, well pruned and once that is finished in two years I uh, I will see whether um, let's say I, I still have the the urge or the, uh, or the let's say whether I, I would like to, uh, to, to buy an, another vineyard. What I will buy are great locations which are not planted yet. I I have uh, in property some four hectares, which of which three hectares can be planted, and I think they're great locations. And uh, but that needs time, and so I need to choose. I'm uh, 52 years old, and I I physically and realistically have 20 or 25 harvests, which and, um, sounds for some people dramatic, but for me it. I feel perfectly um, uh, comfortable with that. It's just a reality. I, I can work physically until 70, 75 years old, but then you also have to be honest to yourself. I mean, uh, you're not gonna gonna carry cases and and do heavy work and um, like uh, like today, and uh, that's just physically impossible. And so there will be um, land available for our children. To, uh, to choose whether they want to plant it or not. But uh, I will always, if I have the chance, buy land and uh, be great uh, the positions to be able to plant it. That plantation will not be done in my life anymore, but uh, no, that's going to be for, uh, for our children. So eventually we will end up with maybe 30 hectares or 35, and then it's up to our children gradually to choose where they will plant or will they, uh, or maybe even sell it. That's, that will be entirely up to them, and that's not uh, in my hands anymore. But at least the possibility will be there. Is your dad still alive? Yes, he is. And then uh, also my mother, they're, on, um, uh, they're very healthy. And so I'm very happy for that, but and, um, uh, I uh, I'm also a bit concerned. They uh, they have a certain age, and so it and, uh, it's nice that they uh, they come once in a while to and, uh, to me, and, and uh, I go and visit them and, uh, because it's um, I don't know my for my father it's it's something special also. It's and, um, uh, as a wine collector, obviously producing wine. It's an, um, it's it's a big jump, and it's an, but it's nice to see that uh, things go well, and so he's uh, he's very uh, he's very happy for me. Did seeing your dad get a bit older lend itself to your own impression of impermanence and the twenty twenty five vintage idea that maybe you wouldn't be around forever? 
You know, I, we we never talk about these things, but I I think he understands and uh, perfectly what and uh, what is going uh, what is going on in uh, in my mind, and, and um, it's something funny between father and son. Usually, one never speaks about this, but uh, I think I I kind of feel what uh, what he's uh, he's thinking, and uh, and and um, uh, I think it's a mutual thing. And how did you meet your wife? Um, uh, Aki, she uh, she visited me in, in 2006 um, in, because she read an article about my uh, my way of cultivating. I prefer the the non tillage and uh, philosophy of uh, Fukuoka compared to the uh, the, the constant tilling and um, uh, and so she um, um, she visited me and we uh, we st- we stayed in touch over. Um, 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 six and, and more months she came back and then we and, uh, in the end she she stayed on Etna because she's Japanese and Fukuoka yes. was also a yeah. Japanese farmer and philosopher yeah uh, but it, I think basically, and um, she um, she read about my wines and um, because uh, my uh, my wines are uh, let's say well re- uh, represented in in Japan in uh, in a way that uh, Japan was my first. Uh, Customer, my first and um, overall, and uh, not only my my biggest in the, in the first years, but uh, and so in Japan and uh, there's many of my uh, my first vintages and um, uh, and so it's uh, there's more and, uh, in a way more information in Japan from uh, from where I started and um, uh, to to what I'm what I'm doing now. Let's say the historical and um, let's say the history of of my um, uh, of my wine and wine. Making and uh, nearly is more represented in in Japan than uh, than it is in, in in other places of the world. You told me once that France was your biggest market, which I found very surprising. It is, and um, uh, not in the beginning. It has become today, and uh, let's say from since two years, it's uh, become the, the the biggest market and uh, for my wines. Um, but France, you have to. Um, you have to analyze this in a different way. It's obviously uh, Paris, which takes 80%. It's a bit like when you talk about wine, obviously New York takes, uh, consumes and absorbs a, a lot of wine. And um, so, uh, f- uh, but in France, uh, the, my wines are also in uh, in shops in Bonn, um, uh, in, in Lyon, in uh, Marseille. And uh, so it's not only uh, even in Reims. So it's not only Paris, but obviously Paris absorbs and I'm uh, a lot of uh, of my wine, but not only for me, and uh, also for most other uh, wineries. And so it's very, it's very, um, let's say, uh, satisfying uh, because it's not that in France it likes wine. They and, uh, they have a great culture, and, and so who needs wines from from Etna in, in a way? But they uh, they seem to have something special for uh, for them, and uh, and I think this. This edge, this uh, territorial identity, the the tension in the wine, it um, it it uh, it has uh, for them. It's those are special wines, which for me is and um, um, uh, is is very very special to uh, to 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 sell a lot of wine in uh, in France. We think of Etna as kind of one thing here in the states. Are you in a particular part of it, and who's next to you? Mm. Um, very good question because Etna uh, has let's say four uh, f- uh, four known sites the uh, the eastern side which is known for the for the white wines uh, which is close to the sea 
is relatively humid and uh, the red wines, the Nerello Mascalese, does not uh, always get to, to perfect ripeness. The, uh, the, the great Etna wines today uh, from, uh, say, Marco de Grazia uh, Terenere, from uh, Paso Picharo Estate, uh, Giuseppe Russo or Gracci, and, um, they, and, uh, we all are in the same Northern Valley. Um, partly by strange coincidence, I started in 2001, and the uh, also Andrea Franchetti uh, from Paso Picharo, he started in 2001. Neither of us knew um, um, that uh, that we were there, and uh, but uh, strange enough, we started both in 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 the Solichiata area, and um, so Marco De Grazia in 2002 he started in uh, closer to Randazzo in uh, in the area um, mainly in Calderara. Uh, Giuseppe Russo and um, uh, he uh, he was in Paso Picharo and um, uh, Alberto Aiello from uh, the Gracchi uh, estate he and, uh, he settled also in in Paso Picharo so we're basically all in in that same area and now and uh, when we're talking about uh, the Etna wines especially the red wines they and um, we're talking about uh, the Northern Valley which has become a bit like uh, the Côte de Nuit of and, um, um, of, uh, of of Etna the, uh, the all the top wines are and, uh, come from that area. You said that a local had taught you about pruning. Yes. How much local knowledge was there in Etna when you arrived, or was it a lot of your own discovery or combination of the two? Uh, let's say a combination of the two, and uh, the the knowledge for uh, for the vine, uh, the the vine growing, the 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 culture around. Uh, planting a vineyard for the next generation is something very specific to Etna, uh, because a vineyard was planted and, um, uh, not only for yourself and then, uh, but mainly for uh, to last for generations. And so the vine and um, the, the the cure, the the attention, the sensitivity, and the work for uh, for the vines are just unbelievable. Otherwise, I, I would not be able to uh, to work today with. Um, with 100-year-old vines. I mean, my youngest uh, vineyard is 50 years old. Those are my uh, so-called uh, jeune vigne, uh, which is unbelievable. It's I work with them uh, with a heritage uh, from uh, from, uh, from generations ago, which is uh, which makes me many times when I prune the vines and um, uh, it, it makes me feel very humble and and, uh, and uh, it's it's very special to uh, to be able to work with uh, with those uh, with those uh, vines if we talk about the uh, the wines then I must say there is very little culture in um, uh, in let's say ancient or old style winemaking uh, also because the, um, the 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 old uh, style winemaking was based on very short skin contact it was much more um, a sense of as soon as possible uh, let's get the wine in let's um, uh, mutate it let's uh, let's put it in a barrel and then off we on our, um, uh, off we go and we can go and work in the vineyards again basically that was that was nearly it so the 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 attention to detail in the cellar was virtually non-existent, and so there was 48-hour skin contact, and uh, there was uh, little attention to to how to to crush the uh, the, the grapes. The, the destemming was not done, not because and, uh, people didn't want to, but but because uh, only the rich people had a destemmer, and so I found all destemmers and uh, with a hand wheel, and uh, but that was only uh, for the for rich and uh, bigger estates. So I think Etna wines um, 
I think the the value of Etna wines uh, has been uh, has been built up since and, um, uh, since let's say when I arrived and um, uh, together with Andrea with uh, with Marco and uh, we were the first three of uh, called this the Renaissance of Etna and so I'm um, also that is uh, is a very special thing to be able to um, uh, to be part of uh, of the Renaissance of uh, of Etna. Uh, both of the, all three of us have uh, have our own very specific technique in winemaking, and uh, but um, uh, all three of us, I think, have and, um, have contributed to uh, to putting Etna back on uh, on the map of um, of great winemaking areas, where let's say the the local producers and, um, haven't been able to do that. Uh, but the, the one thing is uh, is, is sure. We and um, we are able to do this and um, uh, to produce and uh, these wines. To and uh, we are able to let's say uh, we have been able to to establish or or start the renaissance of Etna because of what has been planted uh, generations before we arrived there. And so and, uh, I call this, um, it's a beautiful and, um, uh, symbiosis to, to uh, where, let's say, the, 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 the prior generations have, let's say, uh, passed on to us the, and, um, uh, their great and beautifully planted and, uh, vineyards, which I think today we are unable to, uh, to maintain and to, uh, to plant like, uh, like uh, those people did. So I'm just eternally grateful that uh, that I've been able to to buy and uh, I'm renting those and uh, those vineyards and uh, because planting these yourself, building stone walls is just and an, I know it's 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 a heroic and um, um, work of um, uh, with nature and it's it's just impressive. What about Norella Mascalese? Where do you think it came from? How did it end up in Etna? And what's it like as a grape variety? The the origin of Norella Mascalese, I'm not completely sure of. Um, it's supposed to come over Greece and um, to uh, to Etna. Um, uh, obviously, it started at uh, at the port where usually. M- m- most of the the exchanges are on, um, uh, are uh, start and and have an, an initiation. The Negrello Mascalese and uh, basically comes from uh, Negrello Mascalese. It's uh, like the the, the black um, grape varietal, uh, which has been planted in Mascali. And Mascali is the the highest uh, located uh, village above Riposto Jare, where the 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 the, the harbor. And, uh, used to be where the ships were uh, were leaving to um, um, to, um uh, to bring the wine out to on uh, the bulk wine to to ship it to uh, to different uh, countries and so the first nerello was planted in mascali on the eastern side of the mountain from there it has expanded and uh, both to let's say the southern part of the mountain and um, uh, beyond catania um, uh, relatively high up, and the last, and, um, let's say, uh, the the last uh, valley which uh, which had been planted was the northern valley because of the inaccessibility. Inaccessib- uh, there were no roads in um, um, fifty years ago or a hundred years ago, and so those roads had been gradually built because of the uh, the um, let's say the the wine planting, and um, in the in the seventies eighties and. Um, 
partly because of the you know, the, the phylloxera devastation uh, on Etna, uh, part of the vineyards were still uh, remained and they were not uh, damaged. And so there was a boom in, uh, in uh, interest, not because of Etna, but because that was one of the few places where there was wine available. And so there, there, there has been an, um, a, a blossoming and then, um, of, of economy um, uh, which afterwards and, uh, has, and, uh, has gone, let's say, has been lost in the 80s. And uh, there was the, also Bordeaux suffered in, uh, in the 80s and then, uh, the prices. And Etna has, and, um, uh, has, has gone through the same crisis, especially Etna, because the wines were, uh, were never um, sold with a with label. And so the wine was, let's say, blended either into an, um, uh, Piemonte wines or in in, um, uh, in in wines from um, uh, from Burgundy even so it's um, uh, which answers your the second part of your question it it is an, um, fascinating to see that and uh, even in the old days and um, Etna was uh, appreciated I think by those areas uh, because there was a similarity uh, between either and Nebbiolo and uh, and Pinot, depending on the on the vineyard, and uh, the vineyards could be more, let's say, um, uh, tannic uh, tannin driven, like in which I recognize in the in the area of Solichiata, whereas in uh, Passo Picharo on the higher slopes you have uh, a, a more Pinotish character in uh, in the wines, and uh, it's an uh, which let's say is confirmed in um, uh, uh, let's say with the um, true history of an, uh, of, of Nerello where it has been sold sometimes I open up a bottle that's Norello Mascalese or mostly Norello Mascalese and I drink it young and I think to myself boy this could age like a burgundy this tastes like a burgundy or this tastes yeah. like a certain kind of Barolo this could age that well does it age that well? Have you opened up bottles that have medium length, uh, you know, at 10 years or uh, ageability at 20 years or 30 years? Have have you had examples that have aged on the same kind of curve that you associate with Burgundy or Nebbiolo? I can relate to two examples. I, I had more, but um, uh, you have to to know that the wines on Etna were not really bottled. And, and so it's difficult to find Etna wines, as such, so there uh, there are a few wines, but I'm I'm not sure whether that was pure Nerello. I think they were partly blended with maybe wines from uh, Nero d'Avola, from Pacino, or from the Victoria area, and so because they were a bit too sweet, and I'm over um, uh, because the the wines were talking about seventy four. And one bottle was 85, uh, and that was definitely Nerello. Um, uh, so the, the 74, I leave it, and um, uh, there's a shadow of doubt in, uh, in that bottle. Um, but a part of it will, uh, will definitely, it, it has been Nerello. And it had a distinct character and, um, uh, to it, a beautiful uh, um, uh, elegance, and, uh, but the, the color and the, there was a bit too much sweetness in the, in the palate to be, I think, a 100% Nerello wine. The other bottle was from the, the Murgo estate, uh, Tenuta San Michele Murgo. Uh, was 85, and uh, it was and, uh, they used to uh, bottle in a burgundy bottle. And the, I remember that we were tasting the wine with the family, and um, it, it 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 left me um, really. It touched me that, uh, that that wine. It was not a complex wine. It was not the most profound wine, and uh, but it had a 
beautiful and um, uh, elegance to it, like an, an, an old burgundy. Uh, it was not a super concentrated vintage, but it had aged really distinctively well. It had a, a noble tannin to it. And it, it just was, an, um, it was in 2002 that we opened it. It was the second year I was on Etna. And I, I really, uh, I... I complimented the, the, the father and, um, and uh, Michele Scamacca for this because then, um, uh, it's rare to find older bottles and uh, it, it was just a fun, I, th I thought it was a fantastic wine. Not perfection, uh, no, but it was something that, uh, that gave me the idea that uh, Narella was really age-worthy. And, um, and so it's up to us now to, uh, to prove that, that Etna, Etna wines can age and, and uh, reach also the, the, that fantastic complexity and profoundness that maybe lacked in, in those days because of too high yields and uh, because of maybe lack of culture in, uh, in those days. But uh, let's say, I think the vehicle is there to, to show greater war wines. What is the character of Norello in terms of a grape that you pick, harvest, and then use? It seems to have lighter color. It seems to have tannins, but not firm, firm tannins. What do you think about it? I mean, I'm just my own experience. But Well, it, um, it depends on the vintage. And it's not to avoid a question or to give a, 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 a let's say, a nebulous answer. But um, Nerello on Etna, uh, especially in the Northern Valley, is um, uh, is subject to all, let's say, the positive and the negative influences of an, uh, a southern area, as well as all the positive and negative influences and the characteristics of a northern area, which means we have hail blasts, we have uh, cold winters, we have sometimes too hot summers. And, and so uh, the vintage differences on Etna are enormous i mean i i personally don't know any other winemaking area that has such extreme vintage characteristics now um if if i take 2012 as an um, uh, as a vintage there is such a phenolic ripeness and i'm um, such a density such a tannic structure that it's it's unbelievable and uh, we can uh, we come close to to nebbiolo with uh, with this vintage if i go back to 2010 and uh, it is a very light and i'm um, nearly no phen phenolic ripeness and especially in the high vineyards and uh, extremely light extremely elegant wines they they nearly remind me of a pulsar or an um, or an uh, yeah, a Jura, a red wine. And uh, so we're talking about the same vineyard and uh, having an, an extreme difference in, um, uh, in, in presenting itself. And we're not saying, uh, I'm, 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 I'm not, um, or, or those wines, when I talk about these, and um, uh, these wines, I talk about these wines when, when you go the absolute stretch to, uh, to, to pick as late as possible, um, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to clean out the berries with an, um, an, uh, a monk's and, uh, patience and precision and um, uh, to keep them as long as possible. Uh, not just to pick uh, unripe, but uh, no, really Etna is also that. It's, an, uh, it's a, a place where 
the extremes touch each other. And uh, that's why I think it's intriguing and, and especially for me, um, uh, I love alpine climbing. I, I like the outdoors, and it's an, uh, it's a challenge. Every vintage is a challenge. It's different. Every vintage, you uh, you have to invent something else. You you have to anticipate some things. You have to and, um, uh, react in, in different ways. And and so I I've, it's, this is the thirteen vintage, and they have all been and uh, different. Sometimes I've wondered as a sommelier how I should go about opening and serving your wines of different different ones it seemed in the past that there was more sediment in the bottles and i wasn't sure how soon or if at all i should decant it off the sediment it seems now that there's less maybe you could tell me going through the different wines that you produce when i might start thinking about opening them I, obviously there's as you said huge differences in, in vintage but sometimes you blend those vintages together so what should i be thinking about and how should i be opening them and should I be decanting them? And if I should be decanting them, how far ahead should I be decanting them? It's a question of where to start. Let's start with the, with the older and um, uh, let's say the first generation and our wines. Um, as those wines were highly evolved by vinification, uh, by choice of vinification, they also and, uh, had a lot of sediment as, and, uh, as you um, uh, rightly and, um, expressed. I feel that the wine um, should be separated from the sediment to start with. And uh, today in, uh, let's say, the natural wine and, uh, commune, and it's, um, it's, let's say, fashionable to shake up bottles and drink the sediment. I'm, I'm very sorry, but I'm, I'm educated a little bit too classic, and so I prefer the sediment to be separated. Afterwards, I drink the sediment because it's very nourishing and it's also and, uh, represent all the density in the wine. And so I prefer to drink that separate. And uh, it's something we always, and, um, uh, we've always done and, uh, at home, but especially in, in Italy with, and, uh, with the, the, the old Barolos, the, the, the last uh, glass of the bottle, I, uh, I always prefer to drink that and I completely separate and, uh, myself because it, it, it is the densest and, uh, glass, but also the less precise. So um, in uh, in the case of my wines, the first uh, wines, I would not decant because otherwise the decanting and, um, it takes away a part of the first very light and um, reductive um, flavors, which I love. And, um, and so I would suggest to, uh, to first and, uh, take the glasses, separate like in Burgundy and then uh, what, uh, what, what, what people used to do in the cellars, to take an, a bottle, six glasses, and then, uh, and then you, uh, you pour out the, the complete bottle and you take the, uh, the sediment out without decanting. You just, let's say you decant it into the glasses directly. And that I think is an, is a beautiful way for uh, for my wines too. And um, then you you have from the f from the first smell you uh, you notice the uh, a little bit uh, the the reductive sides. Um, uh, then they open up with the oxygen. They change gradually and they uh, they evolve always in in the glass. If you would decant uh, a a big part is let's say taken away. Now. If you don't gradually go to the the, the 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 newer vintages, which are bottled a bit earlier, they and, um, they also have less oxygen during the the complete and, um, vinification elevage process. I would um, suggest and, uh, when they are an, um, let's say less than two years and, um, uh, old, I would decant them. 
uh, very slowly, not an hour before, but let's say just before drinking, and um, separate the, um, the the sediment and, uh, from uh, from the bottle if there is any, and then and um, serve it and um, uh, to um, uh, so that at least it can um, uh, open up a, a little bit more, less for the reduction, uh, but um, uh, more to give the wine a bit more expansion because they um, as the the last two vintages also have been quite compact and very and very concentrated i think or i feel at least they they need a, a bit more an um, uh, oxygen to 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 open up and uh, because uh, otherwise i don't know they're uh, they're much more tannin uh, accentuated and less and i'm uh, generous and uh, what uh, what uh, like my wines uh, let's say used to be and um, um, from uh, from the let's say the 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 first generation of vinification, but that's uh, those are two different uh, approaches. So I'm always cautious with uh, with decanting. I'm not a fan of it. But uh, if the wines are, are young, then I would say decant. Otherwise, I uh, I would serve them in the in the bigger glasses. So I wanted to ask a little bit about um, some <clears throat> of the farming. You lay in buckwheat for a few years while the vineyard is fallow when you're about to plant. Why might you do that? Uh, buckwheat has an, um, uh, a special um, uh, quality, which uh, which is it gives the energy to uh, to the land without an, um, uh, taking energy. And um, like there is an um, uh, there are certain herbs and an, uh, or beans that an, uh, that give an, uh, nitrogen to the soil, but nitrogen. Um, it gives, let's say, an immediate uh, boost of energy. It's like sugar in your body. Afterwards, once the sugar is burned, the, your body feels like uh, it it has it gets into a sugar need, and so you have nearly a negative drop off in energy. So first you get an, an excessive an, um, um, uh, injection of energy, and afterwards you go below your energy level. And so I prefer the land and, uh, not to do this and then I give um, a, a little bit extra, say growing buckwheat, and so we don't use it, we just cut it and it decomposes and we leave it and, um, uh, like that for, um, for at least one year, preferably two years before planting. In that way, the, and, um, the, the soil doesn't get rich in terms of and, uh, being able to um, give a lot of crop, but it, uh, it decomposes and it, uh, it gives you back and, um, uh, 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 relatively fast a, a, um, a, a minimum layer of um, uh, organic material. Buckwheat is, is something, and, uh, something quite special. Without, let's say, um, uh, yeah, the, the sugar is is the best way to uh, to express it without let's say over sugaring your your land or or your body you know, which afterwards and um, um, will will drop into a negative phase where uh, either your land or what you plant afterwards will need too much water to get over that phase again so so I, I don't want to drug my uh, my land and, and uh, but I want to gradually and uh, help it and um, uh, to get to to its own balance again and that's also my, the, the philosophy of my uh, my cultivating that is why i i prefer uh fukuoka the non-tillage non uh, if possible to uh, to go that way instead of the the constant spraying and uh, even if it's biodynamic because i do not believe that um, land uh, vineyards and a cultivation needs every year the same uh, spraying 
it's it would be like you know, um like us living in a hospital every and you know, being protected and i think you know when we're healthy we just get out of the hospital and we we live until maybe there is an accident or we get sick and then you uh, you search for the best appropriate medication to wanna uh, to to get healthy again and so i like biodynamics as a cure but not as an uh, a way of of cultivating and that is why i think the fukuoka an approach the the non tillage the, the perma uh, permaculture is much more interesting and much more valuable because it an um, uh, it, it's the search for healthy land and a healthy an um, uh, let's say crop and um, uh, a, a healthy ecosystem which is an um, uh, let's say self uh, self sustainable literally uh, without the help of uh, of uh, of man with treatments with added an, uh, nourishment etc so that is the the ultimate uh, goal which is to be honest very difficult and um uh, i've i've tried to to balance this out uh, but in 2007 to give you a very simple um fact which happened and uh, one of uh, my uh, vineyards nearly was wiped out with an uh, with a bushfire because the shepherds they set fire in the south and uh, to um uh, to so that um herbs for their sheep grows uh, right after the, um, the 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 summer period but if that gets uh, out of hand and you have um, uh, grass in your vineyards it uh, it catches fire and so many times we have to uh, wheel through it to avoid a bushfire to just burn your whole vineyards and uh, and so you see uh, working the land the, the there is the the theoretical approach and then there's the the, the practical situations which have nothing to do with uh, with agriculture but uh, no, obviously you're not gonna gonna let's say let your uh, your vineyard which is a uh, 100 years old vines and um, get burnt um uh, just and uh, just because of uh, of the sake of your own philosophy and so there um, i this is only one example where you have to make a compromise because it's the kind of soil it's volcanic soil so there's not a lot of vegetative growth so they probably just set the fires thinking they'll go out on their own once the grass is gone yeah it's an um, they literally set fire to uh, to grow to to just let it grow again and so they they don't really care it's a, it's something that that people have done since generations and uh, it's uh, i can understand this but it depends also the sensitivity of uh, of the shepherds and it's not only shepherds there's also pyromaniacs there's and uh, problems with and uh, with with other people for some um, uh, mushrooms they uh, they grow after and uh, after an, um, an, uh, a fire in uh, in some places and so it's a combination of many different things and uh, which is uh let's say in your part of of that uh, society this culture and and so you just have to make sure that uh, that you survive in uh, in in uh, in this uh, this let's say in these cir- circumstances and so we have for example a vineyard at Montecola where we have a shepherd and uh, right next to it and he um uh, he's a, he's an incredibly sensitive person and so he and uh, he actually helps us burn around the vineyards and um so that we can leave the 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 grass in the vineyard and so we so we don't have uh, any uh, any problems but i mean that that is usually that's an exception to the rule but it's let's say it sometimes it, it is possible but you need also the uh, the let's say the sensitivity from um, from from other people um, um, who are living around you and so i'm i'm not against shepherds but i, I know they they have a need for for survival 
and so so do we and uh, and so if if both of us understand each other then you can come to a, to a good agreement but it's not always easy this may be a very simplistic formulation of this question but you tend to use very little sulfur in terms of the vineyard and then basically none in the winery mm-hmm. sometimes we hear that active volcanoes are a source of sulfur and you grow vines on an active volcano yeah. is there sulfur already in the soil no there's, uh, there's no sulfur in the soil and uh, there is sulfur in in soil where there is like a mine of sulfur like in campania there are a few examples of of vineyards uh, grown on land where below there is an um, uh, there's uh, sulfur mines and they have a, a very different sulfuric and then um, flavors our wines they have as a, um, as a characteristic a more uh, smokiness and um, which also comes from lava soil but hasn't got anything to do with the sulfur um, the sulfur which let's say is in the uh, in the air because there there is always fumes and uh, and gas coming out of the uh, out of Etna it's an it's an active volcano literally like every month there's always uh, an eruption uh, it settles around the cone of um, uh, of Etna but then it um, it's uh, obviously uh, taken away by an um, uh, by the wind to let's say different areas as we are in the northern valley and the winds in our, our area are much more on uh, let's say west and um, uh, east oriented we rarely get the um, um, uh, we rarely get the let's say the the fumes inside of the valley also because they're taken away up uh, up higher because of the the warmth and so the the influence of possible sulfur in the air i think it is extremely on uh, uh, I mean, it's negligible. So the the, the sulfur issue and, um, uh, in the soil is is non-existent. Also, because we're a lava soil, and if and if there would be sulfur, it would have been burnt and um, um, within the lava, um, uh, the the sulfur itself, because lava is around a thousand deg- uh, degrees centigrade. And so, if there would be sulfur in it, it it's already evaporated in and um, uh, within the rock itself. There would not be even even sediment anymore. So there's uh, the only possibility is in uh, through the air, and um, uh, which yes, there there will be something, but it, it's of such negligible and um, quantity that uh, yeah, it's it's a non-existing and, um, uh, issue, I think. At some point, you introduced a rosé. When was that, and how is it different, and how would you approach it different than your other wines? How do you think about it in relation to the reds? Yes, the the rosé is a is a, it's an interesting and um, story, but also a very simplistic one. I've never thought about making a rosé. That was never, let's say, planned. Neither on um, uh, on 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 my list or on. Um, I I had a a plot and um, uh, I still have that plot in uh, in lease, uh, which contains an uh, uh, catarato grapes, uh, which are distance for um, uh, are distance for the white. And there was a part of uh, Malvasia. The, the Malvasia is a grape variety I, I don't really like uh, as an, um, uh, I don't like aromatic varietals in, uh, in a dry red wine. And so the, the owner was very pleased because and, um, uh, I maintained his, and, um, uh, his lines of, uh, of Malvasia and he made his own and, uh, home wine. And I 
talk to you and um, the, the, the Catarato. And so everybody happy until uh, 2007 where and, uh, he came back to me and said like, well, you just have to also take the, the Malvasia because I, and, uh, I'm sorry, I just can't. And, uh, I can't drink wine anymore. So uh, I said like, well, shoot, it's an, uh, what am I going to do with this Malvasia? So like a salad, what doesn't make any sense. And then, um, and then it's like, well, I asked a, f- a few friends so like, and somebody and, um, told me, and, um, uh, an older person, well, you make rosé, and then um, uh, you put some Nerello in it. And I said, like, well, that's maybe not a bad idea. And so by total chance I, and, um, and coincidence, I, I ended up with this Malvasia. And I, and, um, I said, well, if I make a rosé, then it shouldn't be, uh, let's say, red grapes and um, uh, direct press, but it should, and, uh, should be the same philosophy. So like I need to find the right balance between the the white grapes and the red grapes, and so I I, I did a, a bit of a test with squeezing and um, and with with assembling the, the the wines to to check out percentages, and I came with some kind of formula in, in percentages, and uh, I I tried the, the first one, and it was uh, let's say uh, it was a strike in uh, in, in a sense that it uh, it was a very pleasurable wine it was nice to drink it had aromatics not too much it had the tannin touch but not too much uh, so it, it was um, it was a, a rosé with personality with a hinge of, uh, of smokiness again where uh, you can find etna also in it and then uh, but um, a very uh, let's say uh, soif, and uh, like uh, like the french call it and um, it's great for uh, for drinking without and, um, uh, too many thinking and so i had a I had a great summer wine and what about the olive oil? It seems like you've thought it through a great deal. Yes, the olive oil is an um, uh, is very special because it's uh, it's part of the the trilogy of um, uh, of cultivating in the uh, in the Mediterranean, which means wine, um, uh, the the olives and cereals, and uh, those are the the three cultivations which are let's say possible to combine in terms of the work you have. The, um, uh, the the cereals usually are are uh, harvested and um, around August, and then you have your harvest of your grapes. You make your wine, and afterwards you do your olive oil, uh, your your olives, and so you you finish your uh, your cultivating year, and you can um, uh, you can start with the with the winter works. And um, as the, the, you need the cereals to uh, to live off, the the wine was for selling, and the olive oil you uh, was for uh, for sharing it with friends and to and, uh, to use in the kitchen. So it had a perfect uh, logics. And so when I came uh, first came there, I was um, not only attracted to uh, to the wine, but I uh, I especially was attracted also with the uh, with the olives. And so I I started to uh, to check out which olives and uh, the small ones. And I, um, I I fell in love with the taste of uh, San Benedetto, which uh, has also this characteristic uh, smokiness. And uh, when I first made it in 2002, and it and, um, it was extremely refined. The, the yields were very low, and uh, but there was an, an elegance, and uh, which I uh, I I also uh, um, appreciated. And I, I I found a resemblance nearly in the Tajaske and um, um, olive oils from the from Liguria. Uh, and I, uh, I, I got more and more, uh, not obsessed, but really 
focused and uh, drawn to, um, to to producing olive oils with the same uh, quality level as uh, as the wines. And so today we have three different uh, levels of uh, of olive oil: the Comtadino, Monchebel, and the Magma, which is the, the top olive oil from uh, one selected plot, um, um, uh, only if it's ripe and uh, when we get everything right. And so the um, uh, we uh, we produce them exactly to the same standards. Has the fame surprised you that you and your wines have encountered in the international markets? Yes, to be honest, and I'm, uh, yes, because you don't you don't expect that. And uh, I didn't start making you know, wines for you know, for fame. I just started to make wines because I was attracted by by wine, and I I like it. And so uh, the famous and um, is uh, if you can call it that way, everything's relative. But uh, let's say the the recognition for what I'm doing and, um, is uh, is very it's very nice. It and, uh, it stimulates you when and, uh, when I come back home and then um, I um, you can I, I can come to what uh, different places. The wines are appreciated and I'm, um, uh, I I can. I can exchange with different cultures about an, uh, a product from um, which has a territorial sense, and I uh, I can um, I can think about how people react, what they think, and uh, we are and, um, uh, talking now also in uh, in this interview. In um, and uh, tomorrow when I and, um, uh, when I wake up, it and um, uh, there are questions, uh, there are some things that I. Uh, that I will maybe I can use to improve my wines, and so for me that cultural exchange and let's say that cultural appreciation and, and um, uh, for uh, for what I'm doing is uh, is as much important as uh, as my the products I I make. So it's not like a one direction and um, activity. It's there's also a return. Like I, I produce this, it gets appreciated. Or not, and uh, people have a question. They do not like it, uh, and I and, uh, I can explain why I um, uh, why I produce wines in a certain way, and so I I don't accept people to always like what I produce, and so it's uh, it's that exchange that makes me grow and makes me also an, uh, um, uh, makes my products get better, but also makes me a more an, uh, complete person in uh, in the end. So it's a, it's a very it's a very special and I'm, uh, it's a very special product I'm uh, I'm making because it's impossible to to have this exchange with potatoes or with, or with carrots and uh, and wine has this incredible. A dynamic and, and uh, this this incredible cultural baggage and, uh, and uh, which um, uh, which makes uh, which which stimulates me in the end also as a producer. So it's like nearly a perpetuum mobile which uh, which goes on and on. And I think it can it can only and, um, uh, my wines will only get better as long as I I remain sensitive to uh, to to and open minded for uh, for criticism and a positive and negative. Frank Cornelison, he's going on and on in Aetna. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com. 
which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.